0: Welcome to Axios Prorata, a podcast that gets you smarter on the collision of tech, business, and politics. I'm Dan Premack. On today's show, Elon Musk explains himself in a stunning decision in the Scooter Wars. But first, Silicon Valley versus the U.S. military. Earlier this year, it was reported that Google was working with the Department of Defense on something called Project Maven, which is basically artificial intelligence software for analyzing drone footage and theoretically could be used to improve targeting for drone strikes. Now, it seems this had been a very well-kept secret inside of Google because when it came out, thousands of Google employees signed a petition which read in part, quote, Google should not be in the business of war. A few folks even quit over it, and in the end, Google relented saying it won't renew the contract when it expires next year. But the big picture here goes far beyond Google and one specific contract. Instead, it's about whether or not tech is willing to work with the US military, particularly on artificial intelligence, which a lot of military leaders see as imperative for maintaining an advantage over countries like Russia and China. Now to be clear, Silicon Valley's hesitance here isn't about money, because the US military has plenty of that. Instead, it's a bit about morality, particularly for techies who don't believe weaponry is consistent with their mission to make the world a better place, and also a bit about politics, because the vast majority of Silicon Valley opposes President Trump and doesn't necessarily trust what he might do with their work. It's really the sort of thing that requires both sides to sit down and agree to some overarching principles, perhaps ones that could be applied no matter who's in the White House. But the reality of politics right now is that things are so divided, that's kind of a future aspiration instead of a present possibility. So let's go deeper with Trey Stevens, a partner with venture capital firm Founders Fund, whose partners also include Peter Thiel, who recently co-authored an op-ed for The Washington Post titled, quote, Silicon Valley should stop ostracizing the military. Trey also recently co-founded a company called Anduril with Palmer Lucky, his co-author on The Washington Post piece, and also the co-founder of Oculus, the virtual reality company. Welcome, Trey. So for starters, why is AI or artificial intelligence vital to the U.S. military as opposed to, I don't know, making planes faster, just making bigger bombs?
1: Sure, yeah. I think there is a bit of a confusion about what exactly we talk about when we use the words AI in the first place. We're not talking about building Skynet or anything like that. This is really about building the most significant defense technologies of the future, which could incorporate elements of computer vision like those that we were talking about with Project Maven. I think that's important because we seem to reject this idea that we're in a serious competition with countries like China, North Korea, Iran, Russia. And that competition is really to protect and defend the liberal democratic values that you and I both hold dear. Things like representative governance and oversight and equality, freedom of expression. That piece of prosperity that the United States has brought about for the last century is important to defend so that those values are defended. So what Palmer and I were arguing for in the article is really to call the best minds in the tech community to join us in working on this, because quitting that competition doesn't end it. It just means that our adversaries are much more likely to win. And those authoritarian, tyrannical governments are far more dangerous than liberal democracy is.
0: So do you think what has changed recently, though, is the fact that the White House has changed and that therefore people now are viewing the government and Trump, for example, as the same thing? Is that what's changed?
1: I don't think that the large majority of tech companies, people that work for tech companies, believe this to be true. I think there's a vocal minority that makes this much more partisan. But I think there are probably a lot of people in these companies, including the Google employees that were working on Maven, that believe that working on these issues is about what's doing what's right for our country and making sure we uphold those values. And the company that Palmer and I started together last year, Andrew, the five founders of the company have a full spectrum of political views from liberal to conservative. And we're doing this because we believe it's the right thing to do, not because of the person in the White House.
0: I'll ask you more about Andrew in a quick minute. I'm wondering, when you say a vocal minority, then why is the majority being silent within the tech companies?
1: I think that the vocal minority in general in Silicon Valley has a tendency to kind of use activism to hold the leadership of organizations, and maybe in some cases, the majority of organizations hostage.
0: Does that reflect weak leadership?
1: I don't know. I guess I, I don't have any data that would point to what is driving the leadership to make the decisions necessarily, so that would be pure speculation.
0: There's an argument that's made that the tech companies themselves and the people that work at the tech companies should have a say not only in what contracts get signed but particularly in the applications of their technology and what their technology will be used for. Do you agree with that?
1: Well, I think we do. In a democratic society, unlike in places like China or Russia where the government simply dictates what scientists will work on and what they're going to do, we have oversight and public scrutiny of all of these programs. The complexity of the technology and sensitivities of these issues actually suggests that we may need more people with experience and math and science backgrounds in the House and Senate. We only have four people, four members of Congress that have computer science degrees. That is a civic duty. That's something that we are each responsible for making sure that we get right. And, you know, we need a robust public debate about how these technologies are going to be developed and used. But we have to keep in mind that that is actually the essence of a free society and that the alternative to what's being proposed is authoritarian. And that's way scarier to me.
0: So outside of the public debate, how about the smaller internal debates? In other words, if you're at Google, say you're somebody who's working on something like a Project Maven, from your perspective, should the company be able to set limits on the future applications of technology? In other words, if they create a core technology or core piece of software, do they then just send it out into the military for it to use as it will with some public oversight, or should they have a say, kind of a preemptive say in what it will and won't be used for?
1: It certainly does in many cases. You know, contracts are not completely open-ended, so I I think that would be kind of dishonest to say that they don't have any sort of oversight into how the technology is being used. There were Google people working on Project Maven. It wasn't just that the technology was being um, licensed over. I think this goes for any technology that's used by the government. We can talk about things like Microsoft, like Windows or Office applications. Do we not think that foreign governments that we disagree with and terrorist organizations are also using Windows and Outlook for email? Do we not think that terrorists are using Gmail? Do we not think that nuclear scientists in North Korea? or using any technologies built in Silicon Valley. It would be great if we could set very stark lines around what can and can't be used. But I think the best thing that we can do is work within a democratic society and within government contract structures to provide the oversight that we need to prevent those bad things from happening. But sitting on the sidelines is a worse option in my mind.
0: Trey, you mentioned Anderil, which is this company that you and Palmer Lucky co-founded last year with a couple of other people. Tell me if I've got the basics of this right, at least that the initial application is that you guys are working to create what would essentially be kind of a virtual border wall. So not bricks and steel, et cetera, but really kind of a video recognition system that would be able to identify people coming over the border illegally. Is that the gist of it?
1: What we're building is a virtual perimeter security application that could as equally be used for military bases, critical infrastructure facilities, airports and national borders alike. Yes.
0: So, Trey, you, of course, were part of the transition team for the Trump administration incoming, and particularly focused on Department of Defense. So I'm curious, what has been the government reaction to your system or your idea as opposed to what's current Trump continues to talk about a physical wall?
1: Sure. This is a really popular idea, kind of a bipartisan perspective, not only because it kind of avoids the massive infrastructure costs of concrete and steel, but because it provides us with data. And as a policy agnostic solution, it's a great way to collect the information that legislators need to make informed decisions about what's going on on our national borders.
0: Trey, final quick question for you. Since it's been a couple of years since you were part of that transition and you mentioned that the Andrew co-founders have a wide range of political opinions, are you still a supporter of President Trump?
1: To be clear, I work on the transition team because i believed that it was important for defense technology funding and personnel to be protected in the best way possible for our nation not because i was gung-ho for any person that was entering the white house all of these things are deeply nuanced and it's important for us to protect our country first and foremost and let the partisan politics work themselves out in the election
0: trey stevens thank you very much for joining us
1: you bet thanks dan
0: and now it's time for my final two First up, Elon Musk this morning put up a blog post further explaining his interest in taking Tesla private. The key piece was where he kind of tried to worm his way out of last week's tweet in which he wrote funding secured, something that raised eyebrows of the Securities and Exchange Commission and even prompted a couple class action lawsuits from disgruntled shareholders since it was unclear if the funding was really secured. So Musk basically this morning wrote the funding would be from the Saudis, but also admitted it was more an expression of interest than an actual investment commitment. So that's an explanation, just not a terribly good one. After all, if I go to a car lot and express lots of interest in buying a car, that's a lot different from actually agreeing to buy a car and expect regulators to notice that distinction. Finally, Santa Monica officials last week came out with recommendations for a pair of pilot program permits for dockless scooters. And the winners were affiliates of Lyft and Uber. Why it matters is neither of those companies are Bird, which not only is the country's most valuable scooter startup at $2 billion, but it also happens to be based in Santa Monica. This is kind of like if the The New York Yankees won a popularity contest in Boston. The trouble for Bird here seems to be when it did its initial deployment, it didn't follow local rules and that pissed off local officials who apparently haven't forgotten. The bottom line is sometimes it apparently can pay to play nice. And we're done. Big thanks for listening, whether on Apple, Radio.com, or other platforms, and to producers Adam Gracia and Tim Shovers. Be sure to follow us all day at Axios.com and sign up for my ProRata newsletter at signup.axios.com. Have a great National Prosecco Day, and we'll be back tomorrow with another podcast.